coming up on Art Palace. We're fighting those same forces, only now we baby boomers my age realize that those forces have taken greater control, and daggone it, we should have done something back then. Welcome to Art Palace, produced by Cincinnati Art Museum. This is your host, Russell Eyrig. Here at the Art Palace, we meet cool people and then talk to them about art. Today's cool person is author Ellen Everman. Um, Just to kind of start, just tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Ellen Everman. Uh, my maiden name is Everman, and that is my pen name. And I am from Northern Kentucky. I graduated from the University of Cincinnati um, with an English degree. And uh, I have been in advertising throughout my life, my working years. I was an editor, former editor of Arts Across Kentucky Magazine. And I teach creative writing at Baker Hunt Art and Cultural Center in Covington, Kentucky. Okay. Yes, and uh, this is my second book. My debut novel was Pink Dice, uh, of which this new novel, Bell Bottoms to Gucci, is a sequel. Cool. Yeah. So when you were working on the first book, did you know you are going to have a sequel already planned, or did it just kind of happen that way? It just happened. Yeah. Yeah. You just had more to say about the character? No, or that wasn't it. No? Uh, I was with a friend. We were driving up to Lake Erie, and we were listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and uh, some of the old songs, Find the Cost of Freedom Buried in the Ground, uh, all these, these old, really emotional songs that came out in the late 60s, early 70s, mm-hmm. and I... I told my my friend, wow, so many things happened back then. It was such a tumultuous, chaotic, colorful, exciting, sad, frightful era. And these songs captured it. And we got into a conversation. Were the songs reflecting these things back to us? Or uh, were they inspiring us, some of these things inspiring us? We had an incredibly uh, wonderful conversation. And I thought to myself, hmm, I think... This, there might be a book in this. And so I thought, logically, I'll just, I'll just make Patty Ray. She's 11 years old in Pink Dice. When you see her again in Bell Bottoms to Gucci, she's 19. She just graduated from high school. She has a scholarship to UC Berkeley. And she's at UC Berkeley on Telegraph Avenue waiting to go into Cody's bookstore when the story begins. I know you don't want to spoil it or anything, but tell us a little bit about, you know, what what we kind of need to know if if somebody is it if somebody started with this book what would they need to know about this character and sort of where they've been uh actually both books stand on their own mm-hmm. and i think it just would be a delight for those people who have read pink dice to think oh my gosh here she is grown up mm-hmm. and look what she's going through the theme there are several themes in the book and the the major theme is how a hippie became a yuppie and when i wanted to explore that phenomenon because it was such a common occurrence in those days Mm-hmm. And uh, very few hippies remained hippies. And um, so I wanted to uh, show her transformation. And uh, it is told in first person. And I wanted you uh, to see her go through. She is um, 
groomed by a Svengali at UC Berkeley. And uh, his name is David. He is based loosely on the character Mario Savio, who was the kingpin of the civil rights and the free speech movements. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, he grooms her to be a campus protesting hippie. And she gets into all of that. She's peace and love. She's totally ingrained in it. But then she graduates mm-hmm. from college. She comes back home. She grabs at the materialistic carrot. She goes into corporate America. And that's kind of where it becomes semi-autobiographical. It sort of takes on my life. But because the story starts in 1964, I had to do a lot of research. It was an exciting time. But it was so exciting to go back and especially online to see the pictures, to hear the speeches. And when I ran into Mario Savio... I said, I have got to put this guy in my story. Why? What was so what was so exciting? Mario Salvia was from New York City. I think he was a philosophy major. He was very, very uh uh he was uh, timid. Uh and but when he found out that you could not discuss politics or uh, the civil rights on campus, he just went ballistic. Hmm. And uh there's the famous speaking on the uh, uh cop car roof. And you can get online and see him talking on top of this police car. And he energizes the campus and it turns into a movement. It was called the the Civil Rights and the Free Speech Movement. And he was the kingpin of that. And to see him, the pictures of him on the internet and to hear him talk has a famous speech he gives. It's called the machinery speech. And um, I replicate it a bit in my book. Uh, everything that happens in the first part of my book is based on history. And anything that happens to any of them happened to someone back then. Uh, so anyway, uh, he just got everything going. And it was an exciting time. And it was the mother of all the protests of the Vietnam era. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was the beginning of it all. Cool. And I wanted little Patty Ray to be there. That's my <laughs> protagonist's name. Do you see any parallels between things going on today and things going on in there? I mean, are the things we're still working on that you think about? Or are there connections like that you were making as right as you were writing this book? You bet. Yeah. I did. Yes. Actually, when we were driving up to Lake Erie, I wasn't real happy with how things were going mm-hmm. in our government. And I started listening to that music and I thought, dang. Gone. We were trying to change these things back then. But all of our heroes were assassinated. JFK, MLK, then Bobby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we, I think we were sort of mourning all of that at Woodstock in 1970. And we had the Summer of Love, I think, which is 68. We were, it, it, we were, we were straining to save our brothers and our sisters and our cousins from death over in Southeast Asia, and we were agitating for change, and so many things were happening. We, The baby boomers did change much, but so much they could not change. And those things that they were unable to change are haunting us today. And yes, so uh, I thought this book is going to be timely. I had no idea I would wait this long um, to, to get it published, but I'm glad I did because this book could not be coming out at a more perfect time because... Back in the 60s, the hippies and the protesting campus types were yelling, fascist, fascist, you know, mm-hmm. and called, they called the government fascist pigs. And this is kind of, you know, it, this is my opinion. Sure. Uh, this is kind of where we find ourselves today. We're fighting those same forces, only now 
we baby boomers my age realize that those forces have taken greater control and daggone it, we should have done something back then. So I decided to write the book and it is an ode to baby boomers to show what we did, how we strained, how we fought, but it's also a song of inspiration to Gen Zers who are taking on the same forces that we did. Uh, and then the, uh, the other, you know, Gen Xers and the millennials. But basically, it's a, it's a song of inspiration to the Gen Zers because they are kind of going through what we did back then. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, uh, since we're a museum, you mentioned to me earlier that there's some parts of the book that kind of relate directly to art too, yes. as well. And it sounds like you have a background in art as well. A and, little bit. Yes. Yeah. And so uh-huh. that sort of became uh, some inspiration for you. So tell us a yes. little bit about that, uh, part of the book and how, um, artwork has inspired part of this story. Patty Ray, uh, oh, Patty, her name changes when she, after she becomes a hippie, she drops the Ray. So she becomes Patty throughout the rest of the book. And that's sort of, that's sort of symbolic of her extreme change from a Midwestern innocent apple pie girl to a protesting hippie. So anyway, um, she meets um, an old uh, member of Dutch Patroon from New York City. And he tells her about all these wonderful, incredible things about his family and how wealthy they were, and she doesn't believe him. And he uh, represents, a he's sort of like my Shakespearean clown. And he tells truths under the cloak and protection of his clownish ways. Mm-hmm. And he's an eccentric and he's very smart and he's very wealthy. When she first meet him, she, she thinks he's just handing her a line. But then the second time she meets him, she and her cousin are invited to his fifth avenue apartment overlooking, uh, Central Park. And that's when I decided to bring art into this because I'd already brought art up into another scene and I wanted to continue uh, a little bit of a theme of art, uh, and I brought up, um, I actually bring into the story a famous painting. It's actually a Modelo by, uh, Peter Paul Rubens. And, um, Peter Paul Rubens was an immense influence, uh, during the Flemish Baroque period. And he was quite the character. And then he meets, uh, another character from England, and this is the 1600s. Uh, whose name was um, Georges Villiers, and he was known as the Duke of Buckingham. And they both were incredibly dynamic characters. And uh, I thought this would be a good fit for this Van Renfele, who is my Dutch patroon in the story. I thought it would be a good fit for him to have that painting in his Fifth Avenue apartment. And what makes it even more interesting is that this painting um, is no longer extant. It perished in a fire in 1949. Mm. The reason why I know about it, and I have a picture here in the studio. There it is, <laughs> yeah, Russell. Sort of an equestrian painting with yeah, yes. a man atop a horse. and Sort of your standard heroic pose exactly. with the, the horse rearing up, you know, yes. the man in armor on it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the reason why I have that is when I lived in, Fort, in, in uh, Arlington, Texas, I would go to the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth quite a bit, mm-hmm. and my favorite painting was this Modelo. And I remember I thought it was the final painting because, it, as you see, it's really quite 
uh, finished. And I found out it was actually a med- what they called a medella, which is also called a sketch. And uh, sometimes Rubens, when he was dealing with some very uh, high up noblemen, or p- princely patrons, he wouldn't just sketch with pencil. He would actually do a partial oil. And that is what this painting is. And when I saw that painting and I saw that it was only a sketch and I, and I saw that it perished in a fire, it, it saddened me. I went to the desk. I bought the, the postcard. I brought it home. I was only, in college then. I got this cheap frame. It's still in the same frame, but I bought <laughs> later on, I bought a, um, a, um, an easel, a rare, very ornate easel to mm-hmm. put it on. The history of that picture has followed me with serendipity. Uh, back when I started writing my book, um, I decided I needed a part-time job. Somebody said, why don't you chauffeur part-time? I went to work for executive transportation part-time. They called me one night, uh, one day, and they said, Ellen, uh, we've got an artist, a, a, a musician coming in, and they're only going to trust you to drive him. Do you know who Van Cliburn is? And I said, well, of course, I used to live in Fort Worth, you know, and we went to the piano competitions and they said, can you drive him tonight or today? I was supposed to pick him up at, in his private jet with his entourage. He was coming in to be inducted into the American Classical Music Hall of Fame here in Cincinnati. Oh, okay. Yeah. So anyway, so I pick him up and he's, we're in a, a stretch limousine. He's sitting next to me and everybody else is in the back, three other people. So we're talking. He tells me his mother is from Cincinnati. And I told him, I said, I love your piano competitions. My husband and I went to all these competitions we're down there. And, and, and I was thinking, what else do I like about Fort Worth? And I said, Oh, and I said, I got to tell you something about Fort Worth that I love, the Kimball Art Museum. He goes, really? I said, yes. And everything got quiet in the car. And, uh, I said, yes, there is, uh, there's just a painting there that I absolutely adore. And I think of it every time and it makes me happy. And the man in the back pipes up and he says, what painting is that? And I said, it is the equestrian portrait of the first Duke of Buckingham. And so Van Cliburn then looks at me and he said, Ellen, I would like you to meet the director of the Kimball Art Museum. <laughs> that was the man who asked me. And he says, just because you know about that painting, I'm giving it to you. And then he goes, not, I'm just teasing. And his wife, who was his German, she got onto him for being so cavalier. You know. But anyway, that's my little story. About oh, that's that so painting. great. Yeah. So I would like to read a passage. From, sure, yeah. sure. And uh, before you do that, though, I have to tell you, I'm so sad. We uh, we were talking earlier, and I said, oh, you know, we have this Rubens, and I wish we could go look at it. And our Rubens is also an oil sketch of another painting. So it's kind of funny oh. that you're talking about this, because ours is uh, his oil sketch for Samson and Delilah. And so... I've seen it. Yeah, so it's like, you know, it's sort of so funny that you spent, you know, you were thinking about that, too, because it would have been a, such a perfect fit, but it is currently off you. I'm not oh. sure. It might be on loan or in conservation. I'm not sure where it is right now, but that's too bad. When we were talking, I was like, (laughs) I kind of remembered not seeing it the other day when I walked through there. I was like, I think there's something new up. So yeah, unfortunately we can't take a look at it, but that would have been perfect. So we'll have to have you back to, to look at that another time. I would love that. So anyway, so yes, please uh, read to us a little bit from, um, your book. Okay. And this is when, uh, she and her Patty and her cousin are invited to this gentleman's fifth Avenue apartment. A butler led us through a tiled foyer and into the lavishly appointed main room of Phillips' Fifth Avenue apartment overlooking Central Park. Above a tuxedo sofa hung a Flemish tapestry, which I guessed to be more than a few hundred years old. 
Special ceiling lights billowed over its fragile threads. Philip shot past us, promising a quick return. His butler was told to make our drinks. When Philip re-entered, he wore black and gold silk pajamas with the same velvet slippers he'd sported the night I'd met him at the Oak Room at the plaza. His butler, George was his name, brought him a dinner jacket that materialized from behind an oriental screen. We eyed this production like a tennis match, Mary Lou and I, our heads moving in sync. It seemed rehearsed, or at least some corny part of a play that had been reenacted many times before. Mildly hypnotized, sipping vermouth, I watched Mary Lou's primal feminine instincts kick in. I was feeling supremely safe for the first time in a long time. Nice dinner jacket, Philip. Mary Lou bravely complimented him as if she were in her element. The night I met Philip, I was sure he fell into the category of a professional liar. Now it occurred to me he might be actually who he'd said he was. There was an effort to remember the story behind his wealth. Old Dutch who came to the New World, who, who brought up, bought up real estate along the Hudson and encouraged settlement or some such thing. Shipping magnets? I couldn't remember. He fell like a child into another overstuffed sofa across from ours. Ah, to sleep. Perchance to dream. But no, two beautiful women plainly here before my eyes. And how happy you've made me. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Philip, Mary Lou purred, for this last-minute get-together. She smoothed her Chanel jacket while heaving her breasts up as her back straightened. Cook tells me just another 40 minutes, and she'll bring out the duck. Philip's soft hands came together in a slow, sensual rub, as if the dinner was really going to be us. It made me uneasy. The tapestry behind you, I said, trying to maintain a feeling of control. Flemish? It's a goblin, of course. Of course, I restrained a smile. Designed by Joseph Vernet. I said nothing to this as I hadn't a clue who this Vernet was. Now I wished I'd listened to him more carefully the night I met him. So many details he surprisingly shared with me in the oak room, of which I cannot today remember. Sadly, it is now like his address and the color of his eyes all gone. At my first yawn, I remember him mercifully bringing a long story to its end. However, he continued with a fresh intake of air, the painting behind you is my pièce de résistance. Philip stood up to announce this. So we stood up too. His arms begged us to turn around, so we turned around. Philip almost leapt across the room to pull open a double antique satin drape that apparently hid a masterpiece from view. It's breathtaking, I whispered, looking at the colossal painting once the drapes had been parted. I had to stand back a bit to take it all in. Mary Lou clasped my arm, relaying her shock, not because of the size so much, I think, but because it bore the unmistakable style of a master, likely a Rubens, I thought, but I kept this to myself. Philip stood between us, his arms around our waists. The Duke of Buckingham, he announced, as if the brightly painted gentleman before us were alive. A man of Stuart peerage, you know. I didn't know. Most people think this painting perished in a fire back in the forties. 
Philip chuckled to himself. This is my great secret here, girls. So, shh, don't tell a soul. It was then that I entertained a sobering thought. Insanity. Philip would not have been the first descendant of wealth to suffer from it. I had to admit the Duke was mesmerizing, and I felt sure I'd seen it somewhere before. But where? Philip couldn't pull his eyes away from it after he'd turned on the overheads. The bright, well-positioned lights revealed the pearly whites, tracing the muscles of an attentive seraph. The heavenly glow, a hallmark of Peter Paul Rubens. The Duke's red cape, pulled back from his shoulders by force of wind, hovered above the backside of his trusty steed in royal decoration. His unlikely gaze fell upon us in eerie familiarity, his silver armor shining, his gauntleted hands forgetting some battle before him in order to pose for the ages. Why is the horse rearing up? Is he trampling that woman? Mary Lou asked, pointing, but Philip was gone. He had fallen into a blind stare, irretrievably lost and roaming about somewhere else in his mind. It occurred to me that he and the Duke met up often, no doubt on some mysterious plane. I wondered if Philip, a man of obvious unbridled passions, became the Duke of Buckingham whenever he chose to pull back the drapes. But then... Philip's lascivious smile struck me. Perhaps he fancied he and the Duke were soulmates, or more complexly, lovers. Dinner is served. The butler's words snapped Philip back to us. Seeing our confused stares, he lurched forward like a madman, snatching the drape, enshrouding the image once more with two pulls and a tug. Mary Lou and I stood still as death, as if he'd shared something with us. By mistake. Thank you. I, I was thinking there's something really romantic about putting a, a, a painting that was lost in a fire in a book because your imagination makes it the best version of it it can ever be, right? Yes. Like, like you're probably your your why you're so interested in this painting is that it's it's this idea that comes from the sketch is that there's this version of it that's even better. And you can never see it. Yes. Yes. And it was a fantasy of mine. Bring it alive yeah. in, in your book. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a perfect and it's a perfect fitting for a book where there obviously it's like it it also exists in your mind and it's it's this thing that, you know, we're we're it's conjured from words. So it's the same idea. So it's it's really great. Um well I think we'll go into the gallery soon, but is there anything else you'd like to let us know about the, the book or anything else you want to tell us before we head out into the galleries? Uh yes. Uh I would like to tell you about the signings that are coming up. Yeah, is please that do. possible? Yeah. Uh the next signing will be August seventh at Joseph Beth Booksellers in Crestview Hills at 7 o'clock. There'll be a talk, Q&A, and a signing. And this will also be for collectibles. And then uh, August 23rd, the Booksellers on Fountain Square, 1130 to 1 p.m. That's going to be a rush, but that's for the lunch <laughs> crowd, you yeah, know. Yeah. 
And then September 18th, on a Wednesday, I will be at the Cincinnati Public Library at 7 p.m., talk, Q&A, and signing. And that's for anybody who wants to stay, you know, in town and uh, enjoy the signing. And then October 26th, that's also a Saturday, Books by the Banks, which is a big deal here in Cincinnati. And that'll be from 10 to 4. And I won't be signing my collectibles there. That will be uh, through my publisher. Okay, great. Well, and um, I'll put all of those uh, listed in the show notes, uh, the the podcast description for this episode. So if you missed that and you want to look back, just check that out there. Um, And it'll be underneath the show description on the website, too. So you can uh, read that there, too. So I'll also include links to um, uh, other places you can get a hold of Ellen through her uh, social media and, and other things, too. So yes, Acclaim we'll, Press, yes. We'll put that on there as well. So are you ready to go out into the galleries? Absolutely. Excited awesome. to, to get out there. I love this museum. Well, we, you know, like I said, we don't have the Rubens to look up. So instead, I thought we would look at something that is a little bit more uh, fitting with the time period of the novel. And we're going to look at something from the 60s. Oh, that sounds great. Yes. <laughs> I look forward to it. Uh, We are in Gallery 231, and we are looking at uh, Soup Can, in parentheses, Cream of Mushroom, by Andy Warhol from 1962. And when I was trying to think of pieces that at least kind of immediately to me look like what I think the 60s <laughs> art looked like. This is the one that maybe more obviously looked uh, sprung to mind, even though it may not have necessarily the things to do with the same sort of uh, world you're capturing in your novel. Um, it, it just was what immediately sprung to mind. Um, and also, you said, you mentioned you worked in advertising. Yes. Right? And so um, I immediately thought of, uh, when, when you said that, it sealed the deal that we were coming to look Great. at this, because Warhol also started in advertising. Um, oh. He started as uh, doing illustration for, you know, like a shoes and, and catalogs and things. And so he started as a commercial artist. Um, What's interesting is his commercial art, I would say, was actually more kind of emotional looking and actually very whimsical and fun. Like he did all these, you know, drawings of uh, uh, cats and things. And and it was kind of not the sort of cold look we expect from Warhol from his fine art. So it's a little bit of a flip. You would think like the commercial art would be sort of more sterile and it's actually the opposite. So I thought that was kind of interesting about him. Um, But yeah, this is uh, probably honestly one of my favorite pieces in the museum, but I know we we were kind of walking up and we were talking about how I'm sure this is not a lot of people's favorite piece. No, I think that this was done in 1962. I think Warhol had a a jump start on the mentality that eventually came to exist in the U.S. amongst the baby boomers of that era. And uh, as you said, he uh, had the ability to do whimsical things, and yet he creates this very sterile image. And he made, what, 32 of these soup cans? Yeah, so this, this, this one is from that original crop of 32 soup cans, and they were displayed in the gallery in a, in lines, you know, in right. like like they were on a store right. shelf. Yeah. Right. Well, you know, my feeling about him, and it's only my opinion, is that he was really more uh, interested in creating a statement 
uh, rather than creating art, although the art is pretty, it is very commercialized, it's pop art, uh, but to me, he was, he just created a statement. Uh, uh, you know, advertising is repetitive. How do you get images into the minds of your market? You repeat the images, and perhaps that's why he did so many of them. But I definitely feel that Warhol was a statement man in the end, uh, after all was said and done. What makes him interesting is that he was very sly about never telling you what the statement was. Oh, yes. And so... Sort he, of like Bob Dylan would never say he was a protester, you know. Right, right. <laughs> so so he, he never let up, let anyone off the hook about what this stuff was about to him. And so I think that let it be open to interpretation so everybody kind of has their own thoughts about it. Yes. And he never gave it away. So I certainly have, I know what I think it's about, you know, and what I think it's about, but other people might think of it totally differently. It it creates more of a buzz if you keep it open-ended. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, you know, when you look at it, like, why do you, why do you think he's painting soup cans? Uh, well, I think the, the reason why he did this was to, to illustrate, uh, the, the era that we were moving into, um, manufacturing, uh, mass production. Uh, he was also making a very big statement, and this kind of piggybacked on some of the beat uh, poets mm-hmm. of the 1940s who wrote about mass production and who wrote about our food changing. And I can't think of the particular beat poet who wrote this uh, wonderful poem about a grocery store, going to the grocery store with... Um, I think it was with the um, turn of the century, the, the poet who wrote Leaves of Grass, and I can't Walt think Walt Whitman? Yes. Mm-hmm. He goes into this grocery store with Walt Whitman and goes, you know, don't touch the cabbages, Walt. You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> and so what he is really making in that poem, he's making a statement, we have lost touch with eating food directly from the earth. We no longer go to a farmer's stand. We no longer visit farms. We go to places that are cold and impersonal and uh, have very little connection for us. And even though we are nature and we are part of nature, uh, today now we're moving away from that and mass manu production of food, canned goods, whatever, are separating us from earth. And I think that's, Hmm. to me, that was always what this was about. Yeah. That just, that when you said the thing about the beat poets, it made me think about other group of poets working around the same time. And this is going to make me sound like I really know a lot about poetry, but I really don't. Um, <laughs> That's okay. No. I like, have to preface this. Like, before anyone starts thinking, I'm like really smart about this. I'm, I'm really not. But I was thinking um, one of the things that Warhol actually reminds me a little bit more is uh, like the New York School of Poets and like Frank O'Hara. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if you know this turn- poem that's called, I think it's called like Lana Turner Has Fallen Down. Oh, I haven't. I've never read that. But it's, you know, it's about like a celebrity and it's like he's he's reading this like headline from like a, a tabloid or something. And it's, you know, it's this really, cool. it, it's this really kind of 
cool tone, you know? Yeah. It's a little bit different. I feel like when I think of the beats, I think of them as very, like, you know, everything's passionate, and it's full of, like... <laughs> to me, the beats are kind of like this painting right next to this Warhol, which is uh, by Motherwell, um, which, uh, you know, when I think about, maybe not this painting exactly, but thinking more about, like, abstract expressionists, or, like, you know, people yes. like, you know, it's it's more of a pollocky kind of, like, oh, I'm gonna spray the paint around, and then, you know, somebody like Frank O'Hara was, like, slyly observing the culture and sort of just mirroring it back to us and right. like here you are like what do you think about yourself you know and <laughs> and that's kind of the the attitude i always get from warhol it's 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 removed and he's just sort of showing us ourselves and and then you know do you is this what you want to be basically yeah. like do you yeah, want to sure. be that you know all of that yeah, yeah. Still, there could be many themes in this oh totally yeah but, totally. Uh, but i mean he was he was way ahead of the kids uh i mean uh in 1962 we were still in the 50s culturally yeah. we were still 1950s in 1962 it was still the 1950s yeah, yeah yeah somebody recently actually it was somebody who was a guest on the show kind of pointed out something to me that you know if you think about the war ending in 45 um and then you have like if you really think about the decades more starting from that point that you go kind of 45 to 55, 55 to 65, 65 to 75, they actually have a lot more cohesion yes. than I think you do if you just think of the 60s. Because the beginning of the 60s and the end of the 60s... Totally different. They're totally different. Absolutely. Well, I'm kind of curious if there's... I mean, again, I know this is a little bit outside of maybe probably what you're writing about, but is there anything else about this that kind of just to you encapsulates the 60s that you're writing about or looking at? Yes, the color. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, look at the bright. It's not, it's a, sort of a peach pink. Mm -hmm. And then the, the yellow, it's not real bright yellow. Uh, and then you have a combination of yellow and black. Uh, the color in the 50s were very pastel. And then as we moved into the 60s, we got into the psychedelic mm, colors. Yeah. And this looks like it's sort of a transitional uh, mm. color wheel here, that he is going from the, the pastels to a more bright color. Yeah. And it definitely, those colors to me say 60s. Okay. So, uh, but yeah. Well, I mean, you, you were kind of, I, I think you were looking at the label and talking about it. I mean, one of the things I think a lot of people miss about this painting that I find to me is the most, my favorite part yeah. is that it's all handmade. Um, and, and that's, what's so interesting compared with say like the Warhol that's right behind us, um, that we're looking at the, the Pete Rose Print. Warhol that's all screen printed. Okay. Yeah. So it's, it's screen printed and this is all handmade. So when you get up kind of close, oh, um, yeah. you can see all the little pencil lines yes. that he's painted <gasps> it, and you can see, and to me, that's sort of so fabulous uh, because he's really trying to paint like a machine, you know, he's trying to be, he's trying to remove himself. But the, to me, the f most fun part is seeing the failures to see those yes. little lines. Yeah. And, stuff. and then he didn't feel the need to hide it. I mean, he could have easily yeah. gone in and painted over that, but he's leaving it. Fascinating. Yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. So I don't oh, know. That's all what of a I sudden, really I'm about. really hungry for cream of <laughs> mushroom. <laughs> you might be the only person who's ever said that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Although I, I would eat some cream of mushroom if we had it. So uh, unfortunately, the cafe is closed today, or we could just I go know, down and have I a was, soup. And, I you know. know. I was so looking forward to that, and I realized, oh no, it's Monday. <laughs> we don't do anything on Monday. <laughs> well, you know, we were kind of talking, and I, I wasn't really planning on doing this, but since we were kind of talking about this, there's sort of a piece right directly across from it, and this one's from '62, and I want to just walk over here and let's see because I know it's close in time. I wasn't sure, but this is a piece by um, Joseph Albers uh, from 1961. And it's a pretty, in some ways there's a lot of similarities, in some ways there's a lot of differences from the Warhol. Um, And Albers uh, actually taught here uh, at the Art Academy very briefly, I think. Um, But he's all about color theory and the way colors sort of interact. That's kind of one of the things he's known for. Yeah, this is really early. This is uh, he. This was done in 1961, but he attended the uh, the uh, Bauhaus school in the 1920s. So he got a start on uh, sort of modern mm-hmm. uh, expressionism, and uh, so this was done in 1961. This is incredible. See, he also had a, a head start. Yeah, he was. These guys were way ahead of their time. Oh, yeah, 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 they, totally. They, they understood we were going into a different era, uh, an era of impersonal uh, relationships for human beings. Things were becoming less and less humanistic and more and more uh, mass productive. Or so automated. Speak, or automated, thank you for yeah. helping me on that. <laughs> and then also this perspective. But, you know, he had the advantage of being in the Bajas school. And uh, so that that is reflected in this as well. But yeah, the sort of, if, if people are unfamiliar, you know, the Bajas school has a lot of, like, emphasis on breaking things down to their sort of fundamental geometric shapes. And and um, so, I mean, this, this piece that we're looking at uh, is completely non-objective. There's nothing, you know, no subject matter. It's just these sort of squares um, that uh, get smaller as we move into the center of the canvas. And it's sort of, when you said perspective, it, it gives a sense of like almost like a tunnel that yes. you're looking through. This yeah. is this is what I think, this is my, if there was any message when he was painting it, it's that perspective is everything. And it's, uh, you know, you're, he's definitely giving you a direction in which to move into that painting. Mm. So I really, I like this. I, uh, in my early twenties, uh, I was with a lot of people who were into abstract expressionism mm-hmm. and, uh, and modernism. And, um, so I like this. Yeah. I, like I would it. say in a way, these, these, both of these pieces you could actually look at as a reaction almost against the sort of abstract expressionism yeah, because uh, yes. they're very, ex, they're kind of expressionless. <laughs> yeah. Structured. Yeah, yeah. Highly structured. Yeah. This one, um, you know, I think about it is, um, if, if Warhol's using his kind of cold detachment to maybe make a statement, I feel like Albers treats art sometimes like a science experiment. Yeah, it looks like it. And so like, you know, tunnel vision. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm sure one of the things he's probably interested in here is, is looking at the relationships between these colors and probably, what these you, the outermost band is this very kind of what looks to us like a very pure orange, orange yeah. um, and then the middle is this very kind of bland looking brown, um, and then I'm sure that 
each of these levels has slightly different levels of each uh, each color mixed into it. So you look at the next level in and it's a little bit slightly brown. One of the things I have kids do is actually sometimes when I'm, you know, in here with Sarah, like summer camp or something is maybe to just look through your fingers at just that center brown without that orange around it. And if you look at it removed from other colors, it's a little more vibrant than you might expect to me. Like it's got a lot more yellow in it than I think you can see because compared to the orange around it, it's, it just looks like Brown, you know? Um, and so we're seeing it going in and in and in and and getting less sort of intense. Um, but I think with Albers, he's always sort of probably measuring the uh, amounts of paint that he's mixing and he's probably doing this whole like experiment. And a lot of times I think for him, it was sort of like the end result wasn't as important as the act of doing it and sort of this experiment and sort of, uh, learning something about the colors by, by looking at them this way. It's fascinating. You know, today, uh, the clothing today has become less colorful than it was in the 50s and the 60s mm. and the 70s even. And uh, a lot of muted colors are being used today. The dyes are muted. Mm. And, and it doesn't matter what store you go into, high end or low end, they, all the colors seem to be muted today. Except yeah. for some specific designers like uh, the Lily Lady. I can't think of her name. And <laughs> I have, and I love her stuff because, as you can see, I like bright you colors. You like color, yeah. You're, you're wearing this very uh, vibrant kind of uh, turquoise suit here. It's yes. very nice, very nice. Yeah, I'm into turquoise yeah, yeah. and bright colors. But uh, also, I think, I mean, I, I you could read this. I mean, if there's any symbolism in it, it's, you know, uh, on the outer edges, we have the pure orange. And then as we add maybe different truths, uh, the color, our perception becomes less clear and less vibrant. And it becomes a little more complex and perhaps darker. I mean, mm. yeah, it's one way to look at it. Yeah. And then you progress in to the dark beige and then the almost uh, brown beige. And uh, so... This could represent many things, you know, by the end of your life. With the things that you thought were wonderful uh, when you were young, what has happened to it? I mean, Mm. that's just one way to look at it. That's a dark way to look at it. (laughs) No, I love that you're going there. That's nice. Yeah. But, you know, uh, and and if you wanted to relate it to the 60s, the 60s was a time of discovery and uh, and protest and agitation and uh, wanting to change things. And, you know, this... 1961, as I said, he was way ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I keep thinking, too, about the way yeah, when you're kind of talking about the perspective, it's I, I try to see this painting as flat, um, and it's kind of hard to. Very difficult. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's something that's really interesting. And so I think you're, you're, you're spot on about that aspect of it because, I mean, he's actually trying very hard to make this about as flat as it can get. You know, he's trying to get rid of almost any brush strokes, and that's a real similarity right. with the Warhol in that they're trying to paint like machines, um, and, you know, he's trying to almost remove the hand of the, the of the artist as much as he can um, and make this very flat thing. But it's so hard not to give it depth because right. of the arrangement of those right. uh, squares. So it's kind of fun to see those two things kind of fight against each yeah. other. And what you just said, you know, it's about the, you, in, the impersonalization of the culture. We're getting further and further away from the earth. And uh, this 
kind of illustrates that as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, did you have any other last thoughts before, before we say goodbye? <laughs> <laughs> well, I just want to thank you so much for inviting me over. This has been so wonderful and I appreciate your time and, uh, letting me talk to, uh, to your uh, audience. Oh, well, thank you. Art Museum. Thank you so much for being our guest today. It's been wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Art Palace. We hope you'll be inspired to come visit the Cincinnati Art Museum and have your own conversations about the art. General admission to the museum is always free, and we also offer free parking. Special exhibitions on view right now are Kimono, Refashioning Contemporary Style, and No Spectators, The Art of Burning Man. For program reservations and more information, visit CincinnatiArtMuseum.org. You can follow the museum on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, and also join our Art Palace Facebook group. Our theme song is Offrande Musicale by Bacalao. And if you enjoy the show, why not leave us a nice review or rating? Or you can also take our survey, which helps us learn more about our listeners, at cincinnatiartmuseum.org slash podcast. I'm Russell Eyrig, and this has been Art Palace, produced by the Cincinnati Art Museum. 